We're delighted tonight to have as our speaker, Father Cashin Koneman. You may remember him from Lent, gave a very uh, popular talk uh, during this, just this past Lent. Father Koneman is a monk, priest, and the prior of St. Louis Abbey. He teaches friendship with God and the theology of marriage at St. Louis Priory. Father Koneman brings a monk single-mindedness to the lover's pursuit of the beloved. He has need of this focus in a life that juggles teaching, advising teens, looking after the infirm members of the St. Louis Abbey, cooking, offering the sacraments to parishioners, praying four hours per day, recreating and socializing with friends and fellow monks, and tending to the many and varied obligations and requests. Very busy, so thank you, Father, for coming out tonight. And at speaking with Father uh, before uh, services, just realized on a uh, pilgrimage that some of us just went on with uh, Ascension Parish in uh, southern, went to southern Austria and Germany and others. We went to a monastery, Helgenkreutz Monastery, Holy Cross. Father can say that much better than I. And we had a tour from a uh, brother there, Brother Leo, who's professing his final vows on August 15th, the Assumption, so pray for him. But Father Koneman told me the St. Louis Abbey has a priest, or uh, has a brother studying at that at that monastery, which is the longest continuously operating monastery in the world, the Benedictine Monastery. So we have a connection uh, from St. Louis all the way to Austria through the, the work of our St. Louis Priory. So thanks thanks to them for that great work. And uh, please join me in welcoming Father Koneman back to our, our talk tonight. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I'm glad that St. Louis Abbey got a mention uh, way over there in southern Austria where you guys were on pilgrimage. That's fantastic. So tonight's presentation is a little bit of an advertisement for paying attention to St. Benedict today. I'm going to talk just a few aspects of his life and try to draw from those few aspects a few uh, lessons that are apl applicable today. The Source texts for St. Benedict are only two small source texts. Uh, the one is the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, the best translation is the RB 1980. And the other one is St. Gregory the Great uh, wrote uh, his dialogues. And in book two of the dialogues, he wrote the life and miracles of St. Benedict, uh, also a pretty small little book to read. Uh, and that, those are the two sources we have for everything we know from about St. Benedict. I'm going to draw quite a bit from St. Gregory the Great's life uh, and miracles of St. Benedict. St. Gregory the Great begins, some years ago there lived a man who was revered for the holiness of his life. Blessed Benedict was his name and he was blessed also with God's grace. During his boyhood, he showed mature understanding and a strength of character far beyond his years kept his heart detached from every pleasure. Even while still living in the world, free to enjoy all it had to offer, he saw how empty it was and turned from it without regret. He did so by eventually running away from the person who was looking after him during his studies, uh, which were in Rome. And this is the little 
section on that. Benedict, however, preferred to suffer ill treatment from the world rather than enjoy its praises. He wanted to spend himself laboring for God, not be honored by the applause of men. So he stole away from his nurse and fled to a lonely wilderness about 35 miles from Rome called Subiaco. There he lives in a cave for three years, tended to by a monk who brings him food from time to time. And this is a bit of his novitiate, his time away with God to draw close with God. Eventually he becomes known for his holiness, uh, miracles really. And to speed up the story a little bit, he is invited by some monks of a monastery called Vicovaro to become their abbot. Yet this zealous young abbot proves to be a poor match for the monks of Vicovaro, uh, who were not much interested in reforming their lives. St. Gregory the Great recounts it in this way. It only made them the more sullen to find him curbing every fault and evil habit. They could not see why they should have to force their settled minds into a new ways of thinking. At length, proving once again that the very life of the just is a burden to the wicked, they tried to find a means of doing away with him and decided to poison his wine. A glass pitcher containing this poisoned drink was presented to the man of God during his meal for the customary blessing. As he made the sign of the cross over it with his hand, the pitcher was shattered, even though it was well beyond his reach at the time. It broke at this blessing as if he had struck it with a stone. I love that final detail from Gregory the Great. It's it's just one of those touches that proves his masterly uh, writing skill. Notably, St. Benedict leaves Vicovaro. He got the message and departed to let those monks go on their own way. He returns to Subiaco, but this time he's surrounded by another group of men who want to follow his leadership. And this group proves more amenable and malleable and zealous. And among this group, we have people like Saints Maurus and Placid, two of his saintly followers. There are many wonderful stories that come from Benedict and Maurus and Placid. They are fun, but I'm going to pass over them for the moment. I'm also going to pause and ask you, have you come this Wednesday evening with a mindset more like those of Vicovaro or those of Subiaco? I, I'm glad to see at least one smile, but you may respond, well, I'm here on a Wednesday night in the middle of July. And to that I would ask, but we're not the monks of Vicovaro at Vespers in the middle of July, somewhere in southern Italy as well. 
do we not all need to find that deeper reason for listening to stories about the saints? Do we all need to find those deeper lessons about the real dispositions that purify our hearts and help to enlarge them, rather than just read spiritual books for fun? I hope we can draw tonight a few lessons from St. Benedict. I want to talk a second about some of his trials. And the first that comes to mind is a very common trial amongst uh, devout souls, I dare say amongst your own experience, uh, and certainly amongst monastic life. It's the trial of envy, and he faced it many times, as St. Gregory recounts in The Life of St. Benedict. But there's one that takes special notice, and it's uh, about this priest named Florentius, and it is a superb example of it. By this time, the people of that whole region for miles around had grown fervent in their love of Christ, and many of them had forsaken the world in order to bring their hearts under the light yoke of the Savior. Now, in a neighboring church, there was a priest named Florentius. Urged on by the bitter enemy of mankind, this priest set out to undermine the saint's work. And envious, as the wicked always are of the holiness in others, which they are not striving to acquire themselves, he denounced Benedict's way of life and kept everyone he could from visiting him. The progress of the saint's work, however, could not be stopped. His reputation for holiness kept on growing, and with it the number of vocations to a more perfect state of life. This only infuriated Florentius all the more. He still longed to enjoy the praise the saint was receiving, yet he was unwilling to lead a praiseworthy life himself. At length, his soul became so blind with jealousy that he decided to poison a loaf of bread and send it to the servant of God as a sign of Christian fellowship. Though aware at once of the deadly poison it contained, Benedict thanked him for the gift. He eventually asks a raven to dispose of it and take it far away uh, where no one could find it, and the raven, who comes to uh, St. Benedict's aid several times, this time takes it on a three-hour journey away from the monastery, and then returns later for his nightly meal with St. Benedict. If we're going to listen like the monks of Subiaco, then let us note that the devil really works in this way, taking advantage of the wounds of some souls, especially the wound of envy, so as to sabotage stronger ones. Does not every devout soul experience this in some way? Even among very good souls, sometimes we have one spouse saying, but why is my spouse progressing more quickly than I am or more slowly than I am? And are not many good souls, especially dear souls here on Wednesday in the middle of July, often beset by several trials from outside of themselves. 
trials that they simply have to endure from time to time. We need to pray. We need to pray for those who persecute us. We need to pray for strength in order to thrive in difficult situations and to seek healing for our own wounds. Next, let us consider St. Benedict's words on of prophecy. Two of the best stories about it come from his interactions with King Totila of the Goths, who was invading uh, Italy in 541 or so. Let's see. If you will listen a little longer, I have an incident to tell you that is even more astonishing. Once, while the Goths were still in power, Totila, their king, happened to be marching in the direction of Benedict's monastery. When still some distance away, he halted with his troops and sent a messenger ahead to announce his coming, for he had heard that the man of God possessed the gift of prophecy. As soon as he had received word that he would be welcome, the crafty king decided to put the saint's prophetic powers to a test. He had Riggio, his sword bearer, fitted out with royal robes and riding boots and directed him to go on in this disguise to the man of God. Vol, Roderick, and Blyden, three men from his own bodyguard, were to march at his side as if he really were the king of the Goths. To supplement these marks of kingship, Totila also provided him with a sword bearer and other attendants. As Riggio entered the monastery grounds in his kingly robes and with all his attendants, Benedict caught sight of him, and as soon as the company came within hearing, called out from where he sat, son, lay aside the robes that you are wearing, he said. Lay them aside. They do not belong to you. Aghast at seeing what a great man he had tried to mock, Riggio sank to the ground, and with him all the members of his company. Even after they had risen to their feet, they did not dare appear, approach the saint, but hurried back in alarm to tell their king how quickly they had been detected. Totila the Goth presents himself afterwards to St. Benedict, himself deeply humbled, and is admonished severely by St. Benedict for all the evils he has been doing. And he promises, in a sense, to amend, but continues on his way. As he continues south, there's a bishop that comes and asks Benedict, is he going to destroy Rome? There's word he wants to kill every last inhabitant and burn every single home. And St. Benedict again exercises the gift of prophecy and says that no, he will not succeed in this. Rome is to fall to various natural troubles in the time to come. We have here, too, among very many instances of prophecy in St. Benedict's life. 
They are notable because there are so many, as are the miracles, um, but also they're no notable for their context. They occur first in a situation that is in dire sense of need, in which prophecy can be most especially helpful. And second, they're most applicable in a circumstance that is um, helpful for all those around them. And I'll say more about each of that in a second. But the reason I highlight envy and prophecy this evening is because all too often in our society, we tend to downplay envy, downplay the works of the devil who is real, and downplay the works of the Spirit, who is also very real, especially the charismatic gifts such as prophecy. Indeed, there are many people who would hold this book to be purely hagiography, just a bit of holy writing. Uh, and sometimes its miracles are a bit too neat uh, in checking all the boxes, I must admit. But I think we have to read them with at least a hermeneutic of faith. And we have to consider the fact that prophecy, private revelation, that is, is still real today. We live in a time in which this is very much appreciated by the church. We have Pope Francis asking the whole world to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart. We have here in St. Louis, you know, members of the Charismatic Renewal who teach classes on prophecy, and there are weekly meetings, I believe, on the topic here in St. Louis in our church. So I wouldn't come at the book and just rule out the supernatural automatically. I think that speaks more to our spiritual poverty than to St. Gregory the Great's. Um, I know that there are difficulties with the life of St. Benedict being a little too perfect, but I think, especially as we go on for a second, that you'll see they, they had a definite place in a time that perhaps needed them. Did you know that St. Benedict, prior to encountering King Totila, had already, already endured some of the hardest years in human history? King Totila was an opportunist who was invading Italy after difficult years. And St. Benedict looks the murderous opportunist in the face and shows him real strength and in that sense unmasks his weakness. See, in 536, there was a significant volcanic eruption in Iceland very recent science in this last year can confirm by um, special analysis of the glaciers in Switzerland that what the history says about those years must be true because of the volcanic ash. For 18 months, this, the day was dark as night and there was famine throughout the land due to a failure of the crops throughout the Northern Hemisphere. 
Apparently it snowed in the middle of summer in China and crops failed as far as Mesopotamia and China. And Ireland reports three years straight of the failure of wheat. Those were the years that St. Benedict lived through. Those were the years preceding King Totila and his march through Italy. And so let us see how the saint responded to his times. There are these two wonderful stories about his response to the famine of his time. While Campania was suffering from famine, the holy abbot distributed the food supplies of his monastery to the needy until there was nothing left in the storeroom but a little oil and a glass vessel. One day when Agapetus, Agapetus a subdeacon, came to beg for some oil, the man of God ordered the little that remained to be given to him, for he wanted to distribute everything he had to the poor and thus store up riches in heaven. The settler listened to the abbot's command, but did not carry it out. After a while, Benedict asked him whether he had given Agapetus the oil. No, he replied, I did not. If I had, there would be none left for the community. This angered the man of God, who wanted nothing to remain in the monastery through disobedience. And he told another monk to take the glass with the oil in it and throw it out the window. This time, he was obeyed. Even though it struck the jagged rocks of the cliff just below the window, the glass remained intact as if it had not been thrown at all. It was still unbroken and none of the glass, uh, none of the oil had spilled. Abbot Benedict had the glass brought back and given to the subdeacon. Then he sent for the rest of the community and in their presence rebuked the disobedient monk for his pride and lack of faith. After that, the saint knelt down to pray with his brethren. In the room where they were kneeling, there happened to be an empty oil cask that had covered with a lid. In the course of his prayer, the cask gradually filled with oil, and the lid started to float on top of it. The next moment, the oil was running down the sides of the cask and covering the floor. As soon as he was aware of this, Benedict ended his prayer, and the oil stopped flowing. Then turning to the monk who had shown himself disobedient and wanting in confidence, he urged him again to strive to grow in faith and humility. There was another instance when they ran out of wheat, when they ran out of meal, and he asked them simply to pray that evening to store up in heaven all that they could once again. And of course, the next morning, there comes a great shipment of wheat, of, of grain for them, of flour, so that they can continue on. Obviously, if you're living in a circumstance so dire as the one the scientists describe from that time, it is probably best to put your entire trust in God rather than your meager supplies that remain. But this does remind us, or at least challenge us, as to how we put our trust in God and how we respond in our own difficulties.
Now, there are many qualities to St. Benedict. We can talk about order, liturgy, ora et labora, deliverance, evangelization, the monastic vows, patiently sharing in the sufferings of Christ, his spirituality of humility. But today I want to highlight a key aspect of his contemplative life. He kept vigil. He set his heart on the things of God. That allowed him to weather every storm, whether from men or from the elements. In that sense, he is a sign of what poise is available by God's grace. He is a living sign of 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 